tune into. Whatever way you use this station, we at KPFA thank you for making it a part of your life. Thank you for your commitment to this nonprofit listener supported service. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, also 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule learned in school get your money every friday happy endings are the rule so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I hope you heard that last show. Oh, I love Carl Zimmer's book, Evolution. Now, uh, let's face it, uh, even even back in the 1950s, we all knew it was obvious there had been crossbreeding with Neanderthals. We, we all understood that. That was basic, even if you weren't a, a, uh, a scholar, an anthropologist, you know, uh, I I remember on KPFA, I have already told my story about how my father discovered my diaries when I was in college. At the age of 20, I think, I had opined that um, my father was definitely uh, descended. Well, I, I thought he had Neanderthal genes. I was trying to be funny at the time. <laughs> Didn't go over. Never mind. Uh we all know that uh, things get all mixed up. We have uh, whole new races every hundred years. You look around, and I don't like the word race. Let's face it. Uh, the human species is a collage, just a collage. We don't want to use uh, words that depress people, you know, but... Uh, we're a little bit of everybody. Never mind. Today is December the 2nd, 2014. This is Jennifer Stone with the big news. I want to tell you the big news today that Richard III, once king of uh, England, back before the reign of the Tudors, Richard III had blonde hair and blue eyes. How's that? For what anthropology for uh, <laughs> who we are and where we came from. Now, we know, we know, those of us who pay attention, how history is written by the winners. And uh, history buffs know that Richard III was defeated, uh, killed in battle by Henry Tudor. It was back in 14-something, I forget. Uh, anyway... Henry Tudor uh, was the grandfather of Queen Elizabeth I, 
Elizabeth was a Tudor. Yes, her father, Henry VIII, was a Tudor. Her grandfather was Henry VII. Yes, he's the one who defeated Richard, well, killed, or his army killed Richard III. Uh, now, I grew up with that famous, famous play written by Will Shakespeare. Uh, the play by uh, Shakespeare did a hatchet job on Richard III because uh, in those days, just as in these days, politics is all about being politically correct. Playwrights in Elizabethan England knew they could, they could be executed, you know, if they said the wrong things or wrote the wrong things, have their hands chopped off, that sort of thing. Oh, worshipping in the wrong church, that could get you burned, actually. Uh, there are rumors that Shakespeare, Will Shakespeare himself, was really a closet Catholic. That's the next big news we're gonna we're going to hear all about that one, I'm sure, when the Pope looks into it. Anyway, scholars are still still trying to prove that Shakespeare even, Shakespeare was not a man of the people. Talk about revisionist scholarship. <laughs> My teacher at Mills College, Dr. Pope, a dear woman, she insisted that Shakespeare was, a, what is that, just a very ordinary, ordinary dude, and that that meant he was uh, democratic, and that's how he was such a good humanitarian, you know. And she would be upset to think that uh, he was not that merchant's son from Stratford, but that he was Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, an aristocrat whose elite status required him to employ a beard. Yes, I buy it, you know. I really buy that story. It... Uh, it seems to me, all the stuff I've read, uh, <clears throat> it fits. Everything fits. Especially if you look at the plays and you see how uh, the playwright would have to be very cosmopolitan. He would have to know all about court life and all about uh, Europe and that kind of thing. Uh, anyway, the theory is that Edward de Vere... An aristocrat uh, needed someone to uh, pretend to uh, be, what is it, uh, the author. Uh, actually, the idea is to save Edward de Vere's reputation. You see, in those days, it wasn't classy to be a writer. <laughs> anyway, that, um, that story, that terrific story, is dramatized in a movie called Anonymous. Vanessa Redgrave plays Elizabeth I in her old age. Uh, <clears throat> we see her as a young queen as well. Intrigue, folks. Intrigue. I just love it. Anyway, centuries after the death of Richard III, his remains were found uh, about two years ago, I think. Uh, anyway, his bones were dug up under a parking lot in London. I don't know how they proved it was uh, Richard, but they did. Uh, <clears throat> he seems to have had the blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> I just, I just can't get over the idea that uh, this has been hidden from us all these centuries. Uh, the traditional portrait of Richard the Third 
uh, as set down, especially in Shakespeare's play, had him, uh, what, not just a hunchback, but a really hideous guy with a withered arm and all these grotesque uh, disabilities. Uh, check out a television series called The White Queen. Uh, I think, you know, images, images uh, changing so much. You can get that on demand. I'm trying to think. I think it's Showtime. Yes, that's what it is. It was Showtime. It's still there, The White Queen. I watched the episode the other night uh, after I heard all this about Richard. I checked out the episode where he dies, and I thought it was so sad because, uh, actually, I was quite moved by the death of Richard III, if you can believe it. I remember as a young woman, I think the first time I saw the play was over at San Francisco State, and one of their best actors was playing Richard III, and there's a scene the night before the battle in which he dies, and that's the famous scene where the ghosts of everybody he's murdered come to him in dreams, and they all say, um, I th- let's see, something and die, uh, what is that, uh, Something and die, fall and die, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm not sure. I have to look up that phrase. Anyway, they curse him. And then uh, he, what is it? He's obviously suffering from a guilty conscience. And uh, it's the sort of scene that we used to use, male actors used to use for their auditions, you know. Terrific scene. Anyway, uh, now... This show, uh, The White Queen, isn't exactly a whitewash of Richard III. Uh, in, in that one, let's see, in this one, he has got black hair and dark eyes. Oh, bedroom eyes. Uh, actually, the role is uh, written as, well, let's call him the best of the bunch. He's portrayed as the... the uh, not the kindest, but the, say the wisest of all those brothers. Uh, the older brothers, Edward and Clarence, they were they were not so bright. Um, it was a time of civil war. Warlords, you know, run pretty much to type. <clears throat> Together, the brothers did uh, <clears throat> kill a king or two uh, just to come to power anyway. Uh, I, as I say, I really found myself enamored of this actor. Uh, he's almost as good as the guy who played Richard II in The Hollow Crown on PBS. That's a wipeout. Never mind. Uh, I don't find anything romantic about uh, most of the modern spins on the uh, British royals, but... If you go back to that period in the uh, 15th and 16th century, uh, it is really, what is it? It's not a fairy tale. It's just that it seems, uh, what is it? It's a kind of a medieval mystery for me. Uh, In The White Queen, 
Richard, uh, as I say, has no disabilities, no hunchback. His mother doesn't hate him. And he's not a mean, crabby husband. And he's not the sort of guy who betrays his best friend. You remember Buckingham. He, uh, <laughs> Buckingham comes and asks for his reward after he's made Richard the third king. And uh, Richard the third says, uh, I am not in the giving mode. I <laughs> love that. I used that line for years. Anyway, in the play, you know, he murdered his wife and his brother Clarence and his little nephews in the tower. Of course, now somebody did uh, kill those two little boys. Uh, still a mystery about that. The two little nephews, uh, the bodies were found. Oh, golly, that's a long time ago. Uh they found some bones uh, tucked away in the tower, but the bones didn't tell much. Uh, anyway, uh, that heartbreaking scene in The White Queen is one that I've now watched three times. Uh, he was married to the daughter of the Earl of Warwick, and uh, there's a wonderful scene where he tries to encourage her they should try and have another son. They've lost their only little son who had died in childhood. And uh, she says, it's no use, it's too late. Uh, nothing will come of it. And uh, there's no point in there sleeping together. And he says, oh, not, not even for love. And uh, it got to me, uh, I guess, well, I hope that the ghost spirit of... Richard III is comforted wherever it is out in the celestial spheres. Uh, I found another note about Richard III in the December issue <clears throat> of, what is it, Harper's, Harper's Magazine. Terrific, I love the last page of Harper's. They always have something called findings, and they're all these weird, offbeat things, you know, on this last page. Uh Let's see what they've got on Richard the Third. <laughs> yes. Uh, it says here, Forensic scientists concluded that Richard the Third was killed by three or four assailants. The fatal blow was a deep thrust to the lower left skull with a halberd, H-A-L-B-E-R-D. I don't know what that is, obviously. Uh <clears throat> Some kind of a club or maybe a short sword. Anyway, uh, this goes on to say, uh, a deep thrusting blow to the pelvis was delivered posthumously as an, quote, insult wound, I leave you to imagine, the nature of that insult. <laughs> so much for, uh, what is that, uh, Henry Tudor, Henry VII, having been the one to kill the king uh, on a one-to-one -one basis, you know, it was supposed to be heroic on the part of Henry Tudor. Uh, oh, yes, my kingdom for a horse. In the White Queen, they have the Men around Richard the Third cry out, uh, get the king a horse, you know. And he goes into battle wearing his crown, which makes him a uh, target, that kind of thing. Uh, yes, 
I like rewrites. I like revisionist theories. Check out Thomas Jefferson. Ah, there you go. That's the rewrite of all time, at least for uh, Americans. Americans. Uh, now, uh, what I had planned to do today, my plan, was to talk to you about, uh, would you believe, Angmar Bergman. And the reason I wanted to do this is because Woody Allen turned up on Turner Classic Movies, one of my favorite channels. It's full of all the retro films that I love. Anyway, here comes Woody Allen to tell us that he thinks Engmar Bergman is the greatest filmmaker, okay? The greatest. Top drawer. Uh, you know, uh, he says that in, what is it, since the, since the time the movie camera was invented, he's the one. Uh, many, many others made their contributions, but it's Angmar Bergman who comes out uh, on top. Now, I like that notion. I'm very impressed because <laughs> I, I love it when people who have access to the media come forth and uh, express my opinions. It makes me feel like Maybe I know something. Uh, years ago, I did a, a piece on Angmar Bergman. I called it the Master Builder. And I like it because he, what is it, Angmar Bergman, he tells what he thinks is the role of the artist. And it isn't political per se. It's just that, you know, the artist is responsible for our culture. Uh, well, the culture of Western civilization, he is a Swede after all. But let me read you something he wrote in, uh, let's see, this is in the introduction to the English translation of the Seventh Seal. Back in 1960, Ingmar Bergman writes, if I am asked what I would like the general purpose of my films to be, I would reply that I want to be one of those artists in the cathedral on the great plain. He's obviously referring to the cathedral of Chartres. Uh, it was built collectively. You know, there were no names on the stones. Uh, it was just built, you know, to the glory of God. Uh, Bergman goes on to write, I want to make a dragon's head, an angel, a devil, or or perhaps a saint out of stone. It does not matter which, it is the sense of satisfaction that counts, regardless of whether I believe or not, whether I am a Christian or not. I would play my part in the collective building of the cathedral. That's an amazing uh, statement, you know. Uh, I have always seen Engmar Bergman as a uh, tragic figure, a failed Christian. He had a terrible, uh, terrible conflict with his father, who was a clergyman, you know, and uh, Bergman left both the father and the church when he was a very young man. And uh, <clears throat> I think I'll use the time I have left to read you some bits. If 
from the essay I wrote in, uh, what is it? Oh, a long time ago. Uh, I guess in the 80s. I was trying, I was trying to figure out uh, whether or not movies, movies are the art of our time. Obviously, they are. I finally figured it out. Uh, the stage is all very well, and it's one of our uh, most exciting mediums, but not very many people get their uh, butts into the seats in the theater. Mostly, they're all watching their uh, <laughs> their uh, videos at home. Uh, anyway, the films of Ingmar Bergman have followed me in the dark. Most of my adult life. Back in 1956, the seventh seal shattered whatever Christian mythos still clung to my soul. Ah, yes, that's Woody Allen's favorite, he says. Mine too. Bergman used a medieval man as a metaphor to probe the black plague of modern despair. Watching uh, the seventh seal... Uh, oh gosh, uh, in 1956, right, first of all, then I watched it again, uh, 25 years later, in the 80s, and then recently I watched the whole thing again, so it's been 60 years since it first, since it first, uh, what is the word, uh, uh, impacted me, right, and it did, it did, it's impacted printed on my cerebral cortex. Uh, anyway, I still find that the dark is light enough to see the human comedy beneath the horror. It's all there. It isn't just uh, a fright film. Several people I know were so horrified when they first saw it. They, <laughs> they thought it was a thriller, I guess. Maybe it was the plague victims. Anyway, Throughout the existential boneyard of the 1950s, each new Bergman film gave me a new insight. Now, I, I did not believe that God was a big black spider. <laughs> That's in Through a Glass Darkly. I did know that modern birthing was isolated anguish. That's the brink of life. Ah, gosh, that's some movie. That's a... Hospital ward full of women uh, either losing their babies or trying to, uh, yes, trying to abort them, that kind of thing. Anyway, 1972, I saw Cries and Whispers, and that one, uh, I can't call it feminist, but it was definitely uh, a chance to look at our mothers at the women, at least the women of the 19th century and into the 20th, take away the gothic gauze. Uh, I think, yes, Seventh Seal used medieval men, and Bergman uses 19th century women to portray loss of faith, the Kierkegaardian despair, abyss of loneliness, death. And finally, he lets the women as well as the men, uh, suffer these, <laughs> these bits of anguish as they're all condemned. So, Beckett always said there was a problem of whether or not women had souls. And uh, he asked someone, 
if they did, and the person said yes, and Beckett said why, and uh, the person he was talking to said, oh, so that they may be damned. Anyway, the seventh seal used medieval Christianity as a framework within which to examine the psychic torments of the Western male. After the age of faith, males gave up feeling. They turned to thought. They passed on the burden of emotional life to women. In cries and whispers, even the women's emotional capacity has dried up. Their 19th century existential anguish expresses that fundamental Bergman malaise. I've never believed that Angmar Bergman actually got women right. Tried to make a movie with Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman, as a, uh, oh, let's call her, uh, a mother who practices benign neglect. Uh, I didn't buy it for a minute, but it was a lovely movie. It had the daughter was uh, Liv Ullman, of course. Anyway, women, too, are allowed to howl over the grave of God to suffer the tolling of the eternal bell. There's a mythic mother figure in Cries and Whispers. Her name is Anna. She's a servant. Uh, it's a departure for Bergman because mostly his mother figures presage death. Anna is a mother earth. She takes even the dead, the dying, to her bosom. She nurtures the world indiscriminately. Anna, yes, Anna is the oldest archetype, the great mother. She's the antithesis of the modern neurotic mother. Yes, uh, yes, that's the one that Ingrid Bergman played in. It was called Autumn Sonata. That was 1978. And apparently Ingrid Bergman argued with... Uh, uh, <laughs> with Engmar Bergman, but uh, she still had to play a woman who was kind of, what is it, kind of cold. Uh, anyway, I think Engmar Bergman was desperately trying to understand the uh, emotional life, what he saw as mother-daughter symbiosis. In 1983... There was a movie called Fanny and Alexander. I think of it as the wrap-up. Pauline Kael called it uh, a willed masterpiece, whatever that means. Bergman calls it his last picture show. It has this fairy tale glow, like his movie The Magic Flute, 1975, has uh, that poignant nostalgia like the uh, uh, the old man in wild strawberries the longing for the past uh, wild strawberries has been playing on uh, uh, Turner Network let's see Wednesday tomorrow night you can see wild strawberries again uh, I think that one is lovely but it's what is it uh definitely belongs in the uh, category of geriatric. <laughs> geriatric. Uh, uh, what do we call those? We 
we're not allowed to be ageist anymore. Uh, but it does definitely look like the kind of movie we show older people to make them feel that their lives were worthwhile. Anyway, uh, let's see. Fanny and Alexander, I think that deserves a long, long review sometime. It's a Christmas card of a movie. It's the movie where uh, Ingmar Bergman goes all the way back to his childhood and offers up uh, what he calls his little world, the little world of the theater and the family, where he, what is it, he feels uh, happy and at home. The great world he's kind of given up on. <laughs> the private life is where he wants to live. The great world is chaos. The world is a den of thieves, and night is falling. The women in Fanny and Alexander take over the theater and become the voice of the future. This has been Jennifer Stone till next Tuesday. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Here's another community-powered announcement from KPFA. Fifty years ago, on December 2nd, 1964, Mario Savio stood on top of a cop car in Sproul Plaza to address the student population with a compelling speech to make sure their voices were heard. To make sure that if they were not heard, they would stop the machinery that held back their right to free speech. Today, Berkeley Community Media, BCM, carries forth that message. Their mission is to provide an electronic platform for sharing the words and views of the community, no matter how different, without censorship. Over the past 20 years, BCM has kept free speech alive and continues to provide low-cost access to media for the community. You are invited to join BCM on Saturday, December 6th at 2239 Martin Luther King Jr. Way for their 20th anniversary benefit. You can bring your free speech stories and a friend or two to share in the moment. 